At the turn of the century, there was a meatpacking facility in Chicago. They were turning 150 to 200 cows a day into tableside steaks and shanks. By depicting the trials and tribulations of the Rudkus family, a Lithuanian family in Chicago, author Upton Sinclair hoped to bring attention to the plight of immigrant laborers whose working conditions he believed amounted to wage slavery. An acquaintance of Sinclair recalled him saying that he had come to Chicago to write the Uncle Tom's Cabin of Immigrant Labor. The condition in these factories were horrific. There was no hand washing, no gloves, and in some places there were no bathrooms for workers to use during their 16-hour shifts. On top of that, much of the meatpacking plant involved tearing apart meat and processing it so blood and organs were never cleaned up. In this factory, there was no air conditioning, and it was summer. It gets worse. Since safety was not an issue, workers would, at times, fall into the processing machines. Yes, they became part of the product sold in the marketplace. The Jungle was an instant bestseller. Most readers, however, were fixated on the conditions of their meat more than the Rudkiss family who worked in the factory. Sinclair later wrote, I aimed at the public's heart, but instead I accidentally hit their stomach. Welcome to Print the Legend, a podcast for AP U.S. history students where we discover the stories that made up America and the stories that America made up. In this two-part series on the Progressive Era, we will first start on Main Street, life in urban America at the dawn of a new century. In part two of our series, The Progressive Era, we'll find that the reforms that happened in the urban areas later transcended to the White House. Populism was not a fad that came and went. Populism was simply a wave that brushed the beach and retreated back out into the ocean. What followed was a tsunami called the Progressive Era. Conservatives at the turn of the century were put on notice. Whether they liked it or not, the 20th century would begin as an age of reform. What populists did for farmers, progressives would do for the urbanites in the East. America in 1900 looked nothing like America in 1850, yet those in power seemed to be applying the same old strategies to complex new problems. The populace had tried to effect change by capturing the government, but the progressives would succeed where the populist had failed. The progressives were urban, northeast, educated, middle-class, Protestant, reformed-minded men and women. 
There was no official progressive party until 1912, but progressivism had already begun to sweep the nation. What united the movement was a belief that the laissez-faire, social Darwinist outlook of the Gilded Age was morally and intellectually wrong. Progressives believed that people and government had the power to correct the abuses produced by nature and the free market. The results were astonishing. Seemingly every aspect of society was touched by progressive reform. Worker and consumer issues were addressed, conservation of natural resources was initiated, and the plight of the urban poor was confronted. National political movements such as the temperance and women's suffrage movements found allies in the progressive movement, and even African Americans were beginning to have a voice stronger than ever. The era produced a host of national and state regulations, plus four amendments to the Constitution. Now, it is important to note that populism, while not ascending to the White House, did not fail. It was simply Act One of progressivism. While rejecting the call for free silver, the progressives embraced the political reforms of secret ballots, that's where one can go into a booth behind a curtain and vote, initiative and referendum, where voters get to vote on ideas, and recall, the ability to impeach. Most of these reforms were on a state or local level, particularly under the governorship of Robert La Follette, where Wisconsin had then become a laboratory for many of these political reforms. The populist ideas of an income tax and direct election of senators came within the 16th and 17th Amendments to the Constitution. Reforms went further by trying to root out urban corruption and introducing new models of city government. Progressivism came from many sources from every region of America. The national frame of mind was fixed. Reform in the 20th century would occur, no matter how much and what type. The newspaper at the turn of the century. Sometimes the pen is mightier than the sword, and while it is a cliché, it was true for these journalists who, at the turn of the century, exposed much of the corruption that lie beneath. Collectively called muckrakers, a brave cadre of reporters exposed injustices so grave they made the blood of the average American run cold. The first to strike, Lincoln Steffens. Steffens exposed how city officials worked in league with big business to maintain power while corrupting the public treasury. The collection known as the shame of the cities, like Upton Sinclair, was an instant bestseller. Ida Tarbell struck next. One month after Lincoln Steffens launched his assault on urban politics, Tarbell began her McClure series entitled History of the Standard Oil Company. She outlined and documented the cutthroat business practices behind John D. Rockefeller's mammoth rise. Tarbell's motives may also have been personal. Her own father had been driven out of business 
by Rockefeller. At the dawn of the 20th century, nine out of ten African Americans lived in the South. Jim Crow laws of segregation ruled the land. The Supreme Court upheld the power of the Southern states to create two separate but equal societies with its 1896 Plessy versus Ferguson opinion. It would be for a later Supreme Court to judge that they fell short of the equal requirement. Although empowered to vote by the 15th Amendment, poll taxes, literacy tests, and outright violence and intimidation reduced the voting black population to almost zero. Economically, African Americans were primarily poor sharecroppers trapped in a cycle of endless debt, and socially few whites had come to accept blacks as equals. One man who took up the challenge to work against that was Booker T. Washington. Believing in practical education, Washington established a Tuskegee Institute in Alabama at the age of 25. He believed that Southern racism was so entrenched that to demand immediate social equality would be unproductive. His school aimed to train African Americans in the skills that would help them the most. The most famous person to come out of the Tuskegee Institute was George Washington Carver. Carver concluded that much more productive use of lands could be made by diversifying crops. He introduced a hundred new uses of sweet potatoes, pecans, and peanuts. Washington saw a future in this new type of agriculture as a means of raising the economic status of African Americans. In 1895, Washington delivered a speech at the Atlanta Exposition. He declared that African Americans should focus on vocational education instead of spending time learning Latin and Greek, which really served no purpose in the day-to-day -day realities of Southern life. African Americans should abandon their short-term hopes of social and political equality, and instead argued that when whites saw African Americans contributing as productive members of society, equality would naturally follow. For those dreaming of a black utopia of freedom, Washington declared in Atlanta, cast down your bucket where you are. Many whites approved of this moderate stance while African Americans were split. Despite his accomplishments, he was challenged within the black community until his death in 1915. His most outspoken critic was W.E.B. Du Bois. William Edward Burghart Du Bois was very angry with Booker T. Washington. Although he admired Washington's intellect and his accomplishments, he strongly opposed the position set forth by Washington in his Atlanta exposition. 
he saw little future in agriculture as a nation was rapidly industrializing. Dubois felt that renouncing the goal of complete integration and social equality, even in the short run, was counterproductive and exactly the opposite strategy from what best suited African Americans. Political and social equality must come first before blacks could hope to have their fair share of the economic pie. He feverishly attacked the Jim Crow laws and practices that inhibited black suffrage, and in 1903 he published The Souls of Black Folk, a series of essays assailing Washington's strategy of accommodation. In 1905, Dubois met with a group of 30 men at Niagara Falls in Canada. They drafted a series of demands essentially calling for an immediate end to all forms of discrimination. The Niagara movement was denounced as radical by most whites at the time. Educated African Americans, however, supported these resolutions. Four years later, the members of the Niagara movement formed the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, the NAACP. This organization sought to fight for equality on the national front. It also intended to improve the self-image of African Americans. After centuries of slavery and decades of second-class status, Dubois and others believed that many African Americans had come to accept their position in American society. But as time passed, Dubois began to lose hope that African Americans would see full equality in the United States. In 1961, he moved to Ghana. He died at the age of 96, just before Martin Luther King Jr. led the historical civil rights march on Washington. You better come on in my kitchen. It's going to be fundamental issue now before our people can be stated please. It is, are the American people fit to govern themselves, to rule themselves, to control them? Theodore Roosevelt was never intended to be president. He was seen as a reckless cowboy by many in the Republican Party. But as his popularity soared, he became more and more of a threat. At the turn of the century, progressivism transcended from the books of Sinclair and Tarbell, from the speeches of Dubois and Washington to the White House itself. The era of forgotten presidents is over. For the next 20 years, America would see a resurgence in the power of the executive branch, a power not seen since the days of Abraham Lincoln. Coming up next in part two of our two-part series on the progressive era, Teddy Roosevelt, William Howard Taft, and Woodrow Wilson, and their newfound power on Pennsylvania Avenue, the Progressive Era, and the Presidency. That's it for this edition of Print the Legend. I'm your host, Mr. Nasosi, where we take a look at the stories that made up America and the stories that America made up. Thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to join me for this time of learning, and I look forward to welcoming you back next time.